0: Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Today's program is going to start... ...with a couple of emails, and then we're going to delve into the mysteries of the Y chromosome revealed. Doesn't that sound like a National Geographic special? Well, if you stay tuned, we'll be doing a little safari into the jungle that is the Y chromosome. Also, we'll have some cutting-edge research in neuroscience... ...and starting out with discussing why some birds are so very, very smart... So Brad in SoCal sends the following question. It's, we're really having a conversation here with Brad. He had three things to say. First of all, VO2 max. There are several do-this-at-home test methods for estimating VO2 max. Brad was listening closely when I talked about that a couple of programs ago. The uh, simplest one I've seen is the Queens College Step Test. And he gave me the website, and I looked it up, and... Uh, with some caveats, I think it's actually a really good test. Raising your VO2 max is a very good way to, Im- to improve your longevity. So let's walk through this test, or rather, let's step through it. What happens with the Queens College uh, step test is that a person steps up and down on a platform. Uh, looks like about a 12-inch uh, high box. Uh, for uh, at a rate of 22 steps per minute for females and 24 steps per minute for males, and uh, the participants are using a four-step cadence: foot up, up, down, down for three minutes. Then the athlete stops immediately, and the heart rate, the heartbeats, are counted for 15 seconds. Uh, from the 5 to the 22nd point of recovery, and multiplying that by 4 gives you a beats per minute. And then you're going to throw it into the McArdle formula, which I'll give you the one for men. VO2 max equals one hundred and thirty point uh, thirty-three times 42 times the heart rate. And then the VO2 for women, surprisingly very different. Uh, 65.81 minus (laughs) 0.1847 times the heart rate in beats per minute. And uh, it's a pretty good test. Correlation with a scientifically, you know, put the pin thing on your nose, breathe into the mask and run on a treadmill. It's about 0.75, which is pretty decent correlation. Now, yeah, it's not perfect. Taller people are at an advantage. They're going to score higher on this because it is a step. And it hasn't been validated for the step. It was originally, this formula was originally derived from treadmill running. There's really no reason to assume that that's going to use fewer calories. Uh, treadmill running might be a little easier on you if you have knee arthritis, but the point is, uh, That's the test, and thank you very much for bringing that to my attention to Brad. Finally, Brad has a question for me, which is, uh, now that Novavax has been approved, do you recommend it as a complementary COVID-19 booster? If so, do you have any insights as to when and where it will be available? Well, I'm going to start off, Brad, just pivoting a little bit to vaccine availability problems, which... I've been hearing reported to me by multiple patients, Uh, I had a lovely experience uh, in that I made a, just like before, you know, you go on to the vaccines.gov or the myturn.ca.gov and you put it, you answer a bunch of questions and then it offers you a vaccine, you pick your location, it offers you an appointment, you choose your appointment, and then it sends you an email and tells you you're confirmed. So we showed up all innocently on uh, September 30th at a pharmacy in uh, the Watsonville area, whose name begins with a W. Uh, and uh, they were like, oh, no, we don't have any vaccine. And I am so, told them, well, your website thinks you do. And the pharmacist shrugged apologetically and said, yeah, I know. They do, but it's wrong, and we don't have any. But people are having trouble getting any COVID vaccine, is my point. And that's because, in my opinion, uh, if you're looking, my friends, at the difference between a national health system, where the federal government is the purchaser of the item, and a capitalist model for health care, where... Somebody else has to ante up the money to buy the vaccine, and then and then make it back from the insurance companies, who are notorious for not paying very quickly. I can testify to that. Uh, so I think what's happened is that now it's there's just not as much being purchased, and so there's not as much being manufactured and probably the manufacturing capacity wasn't there because Novavax hasn't been that popular a vaccine. I will say that the Novavax vaccine and the two mRNA vaccines, um, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, are all based on the same spike protein platform. But I thought it was interesting enough to ask myself, okay, so what's the difference between the Novavax and the mRNA vaccines. The Novavax vaccine, they actually take the spike protein already and they create it, you know, in the lab. Then they put the genes into a virus called baculovirus that's an insect virus. And then they infect moth cells. And this is lab culture, so you don't have moths flying around and it replicates inside the essentially embryo moths and then or moth eggs i guess would be more accurate and then these cells create a lot of spike protein because they're growing growing eggs and they're making lots of things uh and then the researchers extract those and there's probably not too many people allergic to moth protein at this point so and once it's purified the chances of you having an allergic reaction are pretty minimal They also put uh, soap bark tree extract into it. That's the adjuvant, and that's designed to irritate the immune system. Ding, 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 hello, emergency, danger, Will Robinson, so that the immune system gets angry and goes looking for trouble and finds it in the form of the spike protein and makes antibody against the spike protein. In contradistinction with the mRNA vaccines, you're putting mRNA For the spike protein into your cells and hijacking your own cellular machinery, just like the virus does to make copies of it. So, um, soap bark extract is, as you would expect, a saponin, which is what are usually used, uh, to boast, boost immune responses to proteins. And it's soap. So it basically melts cell walls and the little, uh, that of course lets the virus, uh, Injure the cells, and then the, 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 although the, the, excuse me, it's not a virus, it's a protein. The protein causes a foreign body reaction, and you get the immune reaction. So it's just another way of doing the same thing. And they're essentially identical spike proteins. So I don't think there's much difference between them. Uh, and the take rate and the protection rate for the first Novavax, which was the one that came out about a year and a half ago, is the same. Uh, more or less as the, the mRNA vaccines. So it's probably just as good. It's probably going to be even harder to find. I went to the Nova, uh, I went to the website of the company, which is NovavaxCovidVaccine.com, just so you know. And they don't have any information about when it will be available and where it will be available. It's just loops you to, you know, in coming to a pharmacy near you soon and if it's coming to a pharmacy near me at the rate that other vaccines are coming to that pharmacy you're probably looking at November at the moment and you know all I can say is folks get in line because Thanksgiving is coming you know how in that uh, Game of Thrones they say winter is coming and everybody looks scared well Thanksgiving is coming and that's of course when we st- all gathered together, the gathering of the tribes, and we trade uh, around our uh, viruses. And so, like I said, folks, Thanksgiving is coming. Uh, All right, as promised, it's time to move to segue to the mysteries of the Y chromosome. Now we have uh, 46 chromosomes, all of us, or almost all of us, and we have 23 of each kind. You might remember it's been a long time since the human genome study came out and stated grandly and grandiosely that we were going to find the answer to all diseases. Turns out there's a whole another, at least two layers, of control, microRNA and uh, epigenetics. So yeah, N- a little hubris there from the venturers of the world but uh that's an old story the final human chromosome the y chromosome has finally been sequenced and the new sequence fills in gaps of, of about 50% of the chromosome's length i'll explain uh, about why it's taken so long in just a moment but uh the y chromosome is due you to know, exclusively in males. And the X chromosome is not exclusive. It is in males as well. But males have one copy of that and one copy of the Y chromosome. And there are lots of factors involved in human sexual development, which are nowhere near the X and the Y chromosome. They're spread across the genome. And it's extremely complex. There's an array of human sex characteristics that are found amongst males, females, and intersex, and these are not equivalent to gender. Gender is a social category, and the a big debate going on whether it's mutable or, uh, or not, and I'll leave that to the people who concern themselves with such matters. Uh, but when researchers first completed the human genome sequence, a gap there were small gaps in all of the sequences, but they've been filled in subsequently and they weren't coding DNA for the most part. Um, but half of the Y chromosome was not decodable. Half of the Y chromosome consists of small repetitive sequences. And then every now and then one of these short sequences is found in reverse. So think about having L I V E live. live Live, 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 like 20 times. And then the palindrome of the, then the opposite of that, evil. Live, 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 evil. Then a hundred lives and then another evil. Now that must be there for a reason. It's weird. And while we do see repetitive sequences, and in fact, that's what CRISPR Cas9 goes after, is it works on those repetitive sequences and, uh, looks for them, and a CG, and that tells it that's a place to cut. So this is obviously control stuff for which which genes get turned on, when they get turned on, part of that whole epigenetic structure, maybe a, a, a landing pad for certain other factors. We just don't know. But now our technology in the last 20 years has moved on. So to tackle the most repetitive pieces of that T, of that Y chromosome, an entity called the Telomere-to-Telomere Telomere Consortium used newly invented technologies and assembly methods to do that, to figure it out. But the biggest surprise is how organized the repeats are, says Adam Philippi, a senior investigator and leader of the consortium. We don't know what exactly, we we didn't know what made up the missing sequence. It could have been very chaotic, but instead nearly half the chromosome is made of alternating blocks of two specifically repeating sequences known as satellite DNA. It's beautiful. It looks like a quilt. The complete Y chromosome also reveals some Important features with medically relevant regions. One section of the chromosome is called the azospermia factor region. It's a stretch of DNA containing several genes that are known to be critical in sperm collection. And with the newly completed sequence, the researchers studied the structure of these of, of inverted repates or palindromes in the azup in the azospermia factor. And this is one of the main causes of infertility in men, because these palindromes, you see, they're they're mirror images of each other, so they're sticky, and you can form a loop with them. They can stick together, and when that happens, like the, like getting Velcro to unstick, uh, they get cut off. They're treated as an error, and they create deletions in the genome. And deletions in the azospermia factor are known to disrupt sperm production, and it's permanent. It can't, at this point in our technology, be fixed. But that's a target that I could definitely see going after with CRISPR, and, the, and you would only be going into sperm. You might be able to fix male infertility in vivo in another 10 years. And, you know, given the falling sperm counts everywhere, maybe we can go in and kind of dust off the uh, the the changes that have created the, those also using some sort of gene surgery. I think that will probably happen in the next 20 years. They uh, also found another gene. It's called TSPY. And uh, it's organized in something called a gene uh, array. And that's where you have multiple, multiple copies of a gene. This gene is important in sperm production. TSPY are also organized in the Y chromosome as a very, very big gene array. In fact, the second to the largest known. And since we've got the whole thing sequenced now, it's the second largest. So there's a lot of variability. In a study that was also published in the same issue of Nature, people went and they got 43 different men, and they sequenced their Y chromosome. And when they looked at this TSPY gene array, they found that different individuals had very different numbers of this, from 10 to 40 copies. And that, too, is a very large cross-species variability bigger than what we've seen before. So most sex-linked diseases that men get are actually hosted by the X chromosome because, you know, men get one copy. Women have two copies of the X chromosome. So uh, if one gene is damaged, they have a backup. And while hemophilia factor eight deficiency is probably one of the best known examples that's the bleeding disease that the royals in a large part of europe had in pre including i might add many of the children of queen victoria uh, so the girls have a backup but their sons will get one or the other of their bad uh of uh, of their X chromosomes they'll either get the good one and have normal blood clotting, or they'll get the bad one. And since they don't have a backup copy, uh, it's eeny, meeny, miny, mo whether that son is going to have what was uh, in uh, previous centuries an absolutely painful, awful, and generally fatal condition. So the mysteries of the Y chromosome revealed. And let's go to our next. Uh, Story. And I had also promised you new neuroscience, and these are cool. Uh, So let's start with bird brains. So, like a bat's wing and a bird's wing, form is directed by function. But again, using the bat's wing, the struts uh, in the bat's wing are actually the fingers. And in the case of the bird, the ulna and ra- the ulna and radius are very, very elongated, and uh, so the bird has very long arm bones, and the bat has very long finger bones. But they can both fly. The anatomical building blocks differ, but you get to the same place. And at a microscopic level, the same is true for the brain. When you look at us, when you chop up a bird brain or a, a mammalian brain and you stain it and you look f- for neurons or for me- uh, for myelin, you're going to see something very different. The human, uh, or well, basically all mammalian brains, is uh, layered, that surface of the brain, the surface of the cortex, that's where we do most of our thinking. Now think of it as a cake with six layers, all right? got that cake cake in your mind. now take some bamboo skewers, the kind you make might use for shish kebab uh, or saute and uh, stick a whole bunch of them vertically into the cake all the way through. Now take another bunch of skewers and stick them uh, horizontally and make you can just go all the way around the cake you can put just make sure that each horizontal, Uh, that each of those horizontal stakes touches one or more vertical. You've just built a model of the human cortex. And this circuit is extremely important. And it's, uh, these are, these are essentially those radial fibers that you put in horizontally. Uh, they connect to individual layers. Uh, so you'll get a, as they hit the vertical ones, they'll form modules like computer chips, really, and these modules are then uh, connected by more parallel uh, fibers called tangential fibers that run parallel to the cortical surface and run across the radial fibers, and everything is hitting it it's at right angles, and so what you end up with is like a Mondrian-like grid of orthogonal fibers, and in fact, Mondrian's paintings probably... Look very, like very simple, uh, circuits. The idea is that it's not just one of his paintings, but if you took six of his paintings and stacked them and then put some connections between the black lines vertically, you'd, you'd be approaching the complexity of the circuitry in the human brain. And it's pretty amazing what that human brain is able to do. Now, birds, uh, Birds are pretty interesting. They're 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 pretty smart, uh, exceedingly smart, and some and some birds can solve tasks that will that will challenge a child in grade school. And birds don't have these layers, and it has a much more diffuse pattern of just little stars floating around in the uh, in the extracellular matrix, but. So, scientists now have the technology to literally map the fiber organization of the part of the, of the cortex of the bird, which is a structure called the pallidum. So, a little bit of that technology. They used three dimensional polarized light imaging and you throw polarized light at it at different angles. It sort of reminds me of a CT scan in a way, but they're using polarized light and that's allowing them to see the myelin. And therefore, see the structure. And these, it turns out that these modules have the same basic thing. They have uh, radial fibers connecting these stars, and then tangential fibers connect, and they form units or nodes, and then the modules uh, that are going to be functional tasks like uh, recognizing a straight line. Versus, a horizon, uh, versus recognizing a sphere. That's the sort of level of processing that a module might be doing. And, of course, processing uh, light in many other fashions or processing odor or simply telling a finger or a wing or an eyelid to blink. And all of those modules are hooked together in a complex, In a totally complex structure, which when you stand back, you realize that, again, function is dictating form. And you're ending up from two very different structures with the same form because, you know what, that's the one that works. We'll do one more story gut feelings. Let's talk about tasting, right? Now, if you look at a basic neurology textbook, what you would dis- what you would discover is that there are taste receptor cells on the surface of the tongue and the oral cavity, and some of them are tuned for sweet and some of them are tuned for sour. And these go up the cranial nerves, uh, generally the ninth and the 10th cranial nerves to the brain, depending on what part of the tongue you're talking about. Uh, But recent studies have revealed that there's actually other sensors for tastes in the intestine. And doing some fancy gene knockout studies and disrupting sweet tastes suggests that there is a, in the mouth, suggests that there's an independent signaling pathway for sugar detection. There's also some indirect evidence. So this goes back in about to about three years. So there's a test called the two-bottle mouse choice test. And so what you get is sugar versus water, and the mouse typically prefers the sugar. And uh, so they change to sugar versus artificial sweeteners. Now, both artificial sweeteners and sugars stimulate the taste receptors on the tongue. Uh, But interestingly, they found that even though the mice didn't show a preference at the beginning over time, they developed a preference for sugar. So this suggests there's some additional tasting system that's outside of that circuit that they've disrupted. And so they went looking for that. And, where are these neural circuits, uh, these other neural circuits? So they looked in the brain to see where sugar activated the brain, and they found a second location called the caudal nucleus of the solitary tract. And this is that the nucleus solitaritus is where the vagus nerve comes from. So that kind of made sense. And what they found is that, the, it, that in the gut, there are sensory neurons uh, that Sense sugar and send a signal directly up to that uh, that uh, caudal nucleus in the brain, uh, letting it know that there is sugar in the gut. And they further went on, and they just they found the receptor. It's called uh, SGLT one. That's sodium glucose linked transporter, STLG one, and that's the receptor in the gut. Starts the signal from the intestines to the brain. Actually, a lot of people call it the gut brain because there's so much linkage going on. But fun fact, this uh, this sodium glucose link transporter has a brother, SGLT2. And SGLT2 blockers are a relatively new drug. They're really the latest uh, drug developed for the treatment of diabetes. And they they have an interesting action. They work in the kidneys to cause the kidney not to take back sugar that spills into the urine. Now, normally the body is very frugal and it wants all that sugar. So it takes the glucose back before it lets the urine go down into the bladder. But if you block that, then people start peeing out sugar. I will also point out that that's one of the symptoms of diabetes. So you can't use a urine test for blood for urine sugar in people who are taking this drug because it will be positive uh, because they're taking this drug. Now, that is interesting in a way because this these drugs are now being turning out to have other benefits. And in fact, there's uh, a move to use them in people who have hypertension. Uh, induced kidney damage, and they're proving quite remarkable in being able to protect the kidneys from damage from hypertension. And no one is really quite sure. Maybe it's just energy conservation, not having to do all that work of of uh, get, taking back the glucose is allowing the kidneys to heal the damage caused by hypertension. That's my my uninformed hypothesis. But Uh, they're also turning out to be really helpful in congestive heart failure. So this is the, it's fascinating, you know, you start, you make a drug for one thing, and then over time you develop, you see, oh, wait, people who are on this for problem A actually get better for problem P. Uh, We talked about minoxidil being taken orally for a hair loss a few shows ago. And again, minoxidil, was developed for hypertension, uh, but people who took the oral version of it would get would grow hair in unusual places. It was an unacceptable side effect for an otherwise good drug. However, it turned out some brilliant person said, hey, what if we turn it into topical? Will it make hair grow on people's heads? And lo and behold, Rogaine is born. So a long and meandering sort of James Burke's connection-like path here. But uh, these researchers weren't done. They thought to themselves, well, okay, we've nailed the sugar. I bet there's a fat receptor down there. They used the two-bottle choice again, um, and they found a preference for fat developed over time. But initially, uh, fat versus sugar, the, the rats were good with both, or the mice were good with both. They were like, yeah, bring it on. But over time, the gut said, you know, that fat's actually got calories in it and that sugar, well, it doesn't. So the gut-brain axis is also important for fat preference. We have fat tasters and uh, they found the receptors for that and they definitely are hooked up to vagus nerves. So this raises the idea that can we activate the gut-brain axis in new ways to induce satiety, potentially oral versions of something uh, like the GLP-1 drugs, but possibly something that is already sitting there over on the shelf, maybe even something whose patent has expired that will be cheap because we really do need to uh, save ourselves a little money and keep and we come up with these wonderful blockbuster drugs, but they are very expensive. And therefore, unless in our capitalist medical system, well, maybe now we'll start to get a little bargaining. You know, Medicare has, it's definitely the 50 ton gorilla. If it decides to go after drug prices, we'll be paying what they pay in France. Uh, and it looks like we've got an email. I'm going to open that up. And this is from Ray, somewhere out there in the world. Dear Dr. Don, my wife broke out in rashes sometime after her second booster, Pfizer vaccine. The rashes then started oozing. She's been suffering from this for six months now. I'm asking your advice because she went to get some info on the Internet and found out there are reputable medical authorities, not the hysterical anti-vaxxers, that are saying that there are serious side effects to the vaccine. Some information states that because of the severity of the pandemic, these vaccines weren't given the time that was normally given to uh, uh, access their safety. I mean, he means assess their safety. What is your expert opinion about this? And what do you uh, advise as a remedy for my wife's infection? Well, first of all, I think, uh, Ray, we need to get a diagnosis. Uh, I don't know how old your wife is but i think you know i have a hypothesis and i'm going to start by saying that we have seen from covid more much more often than from covid vaccine a surge in autoimmune diseases after an infection of covid and there is a plausibility to this because the spike protein that is what we are vaccinating people to make antibodies to. Uh, but with the mRNA vaccines, we are actually making it. As in the case of the Novavax vaccine, which we just talked about, you're injecting the spike protein and uh into a local area. In the case uh well you're injecting the mRNA as well. But regardless, the spike protein itself has an by its nature has a pro-autoimmune effect, but you wouldn't think that injecting it would give you a generalized effect, whereas you would think that uh, getting the disease where it goes through your entire body would have that autoimmune promotion effect. And essentially, the spike protein attaches to the ACE2 receptor. The ACE2 receptor is responsible for causing the cell to make one of the more important chemical signals that calms down an immune overreaction. And what, I ask you, is uh, autoimmune disease except an immune overreaction. Now, there are several autoimmune diseases that come to mind, but uh, if your wife is older then I would say that bullous pemphigoid, which is, again, like most autoimmune diseases, mysterious in terms of its origin, uh, this could be what we call a coincidence, two things happening to the same person that because they happened close together are linked together. And of course, it doesn't help that there's, you know, all this political hubbub and the the algorithms amplifying anything to, you know, we, we, we tend to something we see a lot, we start to think, oh, there must be something to this. That's not necessarily true if it's being amplified deliberately or not deliberately accidentally uh, by something trying to sell you ads. So I would get her checked out by a dermatologist. It requires a biopsy, uh, under most circumstances to confirm it, but that's just a superficial skin biopsy. And this is treatable. And so i thats that's the one that immediately comes to mind because it sort of fits what little information I have. That doesn't mean I can make the diagnosis, but I can tell you To get that checked out, you need an actual dermatologist, and you need to say the words bullous pemphigoid to the primary care doctor, the nurse practitioner, whoever is the gatekeeper here, if you're having trouble getting that referral. And then, of course, you may wait for a while, because the last couple of people I've talked to that I sent to dermatologists, I just, you know, they had a really long wait, like two, two or three months. That's not actually all that unusual in other countries but we're not used to that and so it seems like it's it feels like a very big deal to us. Uh you want the surgeon right away for your appendectomy. I'm sorry she's been suffering and I definitely think that uh, that that an autoimmune disease affecting the skin is likely. Is it caused by the vaccine? Probably not. Uh could it possibly be well, the answer to an is it possible question is always yes. When we say, are your experts right, saying that there are serious side effects uh, to the vaccine? Well, if you happen to have your autoimmune disease triggered, that's serious. Would it have been triggered uh, by something else down the line? Probably. So I think we have to really worry about this idea that something is... uh You know, there's a flaw in the bridge. There's a crack in the structure, and it'll be an earthquake, or it'll be a very heavy truck, or it'll be something that causes that flaw to manifest. But autoimmune disease runs in families. The tendency towards it runs in families, and everybody in the family gets different autoimmune diseases because the flaw is in their ability to damp down a triggered immune response. And what immune response they get depends on what trigger they encountered. So I hope you found that helpful and informative. And if uh, I turn out to be, in in the unlikely event that I turn out to be right about the uh, diagnosis, uh, well, please let us know, right? Please uh, send me another, send us another email and and, uh, let us know because I would, I would love the, what can I say? I'm egotistical, and I would love the validation. So we've got just time for another quick story. I think I'm going to talk uh, uh, go off of the uh, warnings. I had several candidate stories here, but I'm going with this one. I got a note from the cardiologist uh, recently on one of my patients, and he said, you know, she's got really high uh, lipid levels, and you know you should you probably should put her on a statin. And yeah, you know, I looked, and yeah, she's got really high lipid levels. But then I looked at her medication list, and I realized, oh my goodness, she is on one of those anti schizophrenic. She is she is schizophrenic. She's well controlled on one drug, but maybe that drug is raising her cholesterol. I recently saw a patient just in the last couple of weeks who was on every single one of the drugs I'm about to talk about in combination, an older woman. This is called polypharmacy. And one of the big dangers we have is that people don't get taken off their drugs. They just get, they go in with, I'm still sick and the doctor just adds another drug. And unfortunately, psychiatrists, are often guilty of this. Psychiatrists have effectively become psychopharmacologists. Uh, they're very, there's very little psychotherapy going on anymore from psychiatrists. And they have a broad variety of psychotropic drugs. They're being used more frequently and in common with other agents like seizure medications, dementia drugs, benzodiazepine anti-anxiety drugs, uh, and antidepressants. It's a witch's brew. Of polypharmacy, so people with severe mental illness, in particular schizophrenia, bipolar, and major depressive uh, or disorders, have a 10 to 25 year uh, reduced life expectancy compared to the general population. And most of this premature uh, mortality has been attributed to cardiovascular diseases from metabolic syndrome. These antipsychotics, mood stabilizers like lithium and valproate antidepressants, seizure medications, uh, raise the risk of diabetes, obesity, hypertension, and dyslipidemia. And we have got too many people in the population on those who are not also taking a statin. And you know, I'm I'm not singing the praises of statins, but from a clinical point of view, it's better to consider that person to be high risk for heart disease and treat them as if they were And the criteria for using a statin in someone who is high risk is very different than in using it in the general population. So with that, I'm going to say olanzapine, clozapine, valproate, risperidone, and ketiapine. Those are the drugs that can really give you a heart attack. And if you're taking them, you might want to talk to your doctor about switching you to one that doesn't raise your lipids as high or going on a statin. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to askdrdawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at Dawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.